Part six of Bizarre by Lord McCall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Jangles. Those symphony concert programs. Metropolitan Symphony Orchestra. Otto Kombacher, conductor. Felice Elephantine, soloist of the evening. One. Gastronomic Symphony. Kovic Bordenal. A. Allegretti. B. Pistachio. C. Chianti. D. Risato. Con Aglio. 2. Larghetto. Cumbacca. 3. Aria from Il Campanelle. Gondola. Signorina Elefantine. The hardwood piano is used. Critical comments on the numbers. 1. Gastronomic Symphony. It is not certain when Peter Kovic Bordenov was born. His parents, being thrifty peasants, put him in a basket and left him on the steppes of Russia. Adopted by a Russian princess named Caviar Vodka, he was raised as if he had been her own dog. His early musical inclination was so pronounced that he was sent to the Warsaw Conservatory, where he served three terms. Soon after being released from this institution, he wrote Samovar, the opera that made him famous. Samovar so pleased the Tsar that the young Bordenov was given a pension and a bath. But alas, either his sudden success or the bath so affected his mind that from that time on the authorities were obliged to keep him in confinement. The above symphony was written on the walls of his cell, from which it was transcribed after his suicide. It depicts the blight of all his hopes, the sorrows of Russia, the drowning of his fiancée, the height of the steps, and the agonies of indigestion. The Allegretti opens with an arabesque tone poem of sombre sweetness, under which strange and varied delights are hidden. Then comes the minor pistachio, weirdly oriental in colour. This is followed by the tempestuous and maddening Chianti. Last of all comes the terrible risotto, con aglio. Here we have an example of the insight of genius. By itself, the risotto con aglio would be almost mild, but coming as it does on top of the allegretti, the pistachio, and the chianti, it is bound to produce a truly tragic finale. 2. Larghetto. This etude is by the conductor. He thought this would be a good place to work it in, the orchestra and audience being powerless to restrain him. Herr Otto Fedor Ivan Kumbacher was born of noble parents in Hofbrau, Silesia. He was discovered and imported to America by the brilliant patronesses of the Metropolitan Symphony Society. Larghetto is a little lager, one without a handle. A composer writes a larghetto when he feels something like writing a lager, but isn't, on the whole, quite up to it. 3. Aria from Abel Campanile. This opera, though well known in Budapest and South America, is practically unknown in the United States. The aria O Belly Spaghetti is so vocally exacting that to sing its bird-like notes the prima donna should diet for weeks on birdseed. Here are the words, which are repeated fourteen times in the course of the aria. The Italian O Belly Spaghetti O Bianchi Confetti Banani, Banani A Tutti Frutti O Bianchi Confetti the translation. And I the wings of a dove, I would fly, I would fly to my love. I would fly, I would fly, through the sky, through the sky, 
I would fly, I would fly to my love. She waddles up. How to know the instruments. Editor's note. The following observations, if carefully studied, will enable the intelligent concertgoer to tell the difference between an orchestra and a dress circle. The principal instrument in music is the violin. This instrument is held fast under the performer's double chin and then tickled in the gut with a strand of horsehair until it cries out, which cruel treatment reacts on its disposition so that, as the little violin grows up into a cello, it becomes gloomy and morose, and when, after a life of nagging, it reaches old age as a crabbed double bass and is relegated to the back of the orchestra, it spends its resentment in querulous grumbling. Further from the conductor than the violins, and consequently more intermittent in their playing, are the Toodle family. Grandfather Toodle, the bassoon, spends his time in dozing. All you can hear from him is an occasional snore. Mrs. Toodle, the flute, is of a romantic turn of mind, doting on moonlight and wobbling birds and babbling brooks. She prides herself on her limpid utterance and admonishes her little son Piccolo not to talk through his nose like cousin Obotooth. Her husband, the bass clarinet, takes himself very seriously, and no wonder, but to him falls the unpleasant duty of announcing bad news, such as that the hero has just died, or that the act is only half over. Quite remote from the conductor are the mysterious somethings that live in kettle drums. What they are, no one knows. But a watchful keeper bends over and listens to them, and whenever, despite his constant cockscrewing, they show signs of aggressiveness, he beats them into submission with a brace of bottle mops. If this is not sufficient, he calls in an assistant who cows them with the roar of a wanging Chinese stewpan. Somewhat nearer the conductor, but yet far enough away to be able to resist his authority until threatened with his stick, are the horns, the most vehement venoms of the orchestra. A blast from them, besides waking up the audience, always means something. For example, the martial sound of a trumpet heralds the approach of a conqueror or a scissors grinder. The old-fashioned hunting horn, from which the modern orchestral horn has descended, was very simple indeed. In those days, everyone was supposed to wind his horn, instead of buying it already wound, as we do now. Yet the modern pretzelite horn is still adapted for hunting purposes. Take as large a horn as you can conveniently carry, a 42 centimeter tuber is preferable, and stand under a tree, with a muzzle pointing up at the bird you desire to hunt. Then place silver threads among the gold for two hours and ten minutes, and the bird will fall lifeless to the horn. Notes on Pianos A piano is an instrument with 88 keys and 20 installments. You play on the keys and pay on the installments, the latter being by far the more difficult performance. If you do not play in time, you are called down by your critics. If you do not pay on time, you are called on by your collectors. The keys are arranged in two rows, short, fat blondes in front and tall skinny brunettes behind. There are three pedals, one for each foot and one for good measure. A damper pedal, or muffler cutout, which puts an end to conversation. A sustenuto pedal, which helps the piano sustain what has to sustain, and the soft pedal, which is seldom used, and then only by request. There are two kinds of pianos, uprights and prostrates. Uprights are used in homes where there is standing room only. Prostrates are used in concert halls but you obviously prefer them because they can hit a piano much harder when it is down. The upright piano is frequently pitched in A-flat. It remains there till pitched out by the neighbors. An advantage that this piano possesses is that it keeps the player's back turned to his hearers, 
which is a great saving to his feelings. Another advantage is that the top serves as a mantelpiece annex. Bric-a-brac that won't stand heat, but will stand noise, is put there. Anything is appropriate. Cupids, shepherdesses, brass bowls, painted vases. The only requirement for place on this repository is that the object be able to make some buzzing, twanging, wheezing, or humming sound when the strings are struck. Prostrates are built for endurance. Their black finish bespeaks the hard life they lead. The conflict between one of these indestructible pianos and an irresistible pianist is called a recital. A non-combatant lifts the lid, and the fight begins. First round, nocturne merely warming up. Second round, etude, livelier, but not much heavy-headed. Third round, scherzo, considerably hotter, fighting and close. Fourth round, passionado, real slugging. Fifth round, rhapsody, piano receives fearful punishment, knocked out in final cadenza, but pianist sprained wrist. In learning to play the piano, the first thing to acquire is a good touch, or tread, as it is properly called. Unfortunately, there is a divergence of opinion among authorities as to what a good tread consists in. The famous dictum of Professor Bisky of Moscow Conservatory, that you should hammer the hammers, being offset by the equally famous assertion of Hieronymus Dudelsack, the noted Viennese pedagogue, that you should not strike the ivories at all, but massage or knead them, Herr Dudelsack and his eminent pupils maintain that his tread is the only normal one, that it has the naturalness of a cat's walking on the keyboard. The astute Russian insinuates that it produces tangled chords and scales that are short-weight. But these methods have been rendered obsolete by the heel-and-toe technique of the player piano. This wonderful instrument, impregnating the feet with melody and rhythm, has given rise to the modern dances. The person who makes a habit of playing the pianola simply has to toddle the music out of his ankles. Even more remarkable is the way in which the piano footy has simplified musical composition. The masters of the past had to toil away painfully with pen and ink, whereas the composer of today can attain the same results with a roll of paper and a ticket punch. Judging from the progress we have made and are still making, it is safe to predict that the composer of the future will use a shotgun. The Life Drama of a Music Critic In four clippings 1. Adolescence From the Centerville Clarion Local talent makes splendid show The concert held last evening in Masonic Hall was a great success. It certainly showed what Centerville could do in a musical line. In the opening duet played by Miss Violet and Miss Nancy Stubbs to the very end of the program, the audience seemed to thoroughly enjoy every number. The feature of the evening was the singing by Mr. Harry Bowers of Rocked in the Cradle of the Deep. This noble song gave the popular young druggist an opportunity to display his remarkable low notes. Another person deserving a special mention was Miss Helen Smith, who, attractively dressed in pink and carrying a bouquet of fresh flowers, rendered the rosary with great effect. All in all, the concert was a great event. A considerable amount of money was raised toward the new fire engine. Abraham Lincoln Simpson, Music and Art Critic. 2. Effervescence from the New York Chronicle. Gotham Orchestra plays Schnitzel. Warmth of Oriental Color. 
Adolf Schnitzel's symphonic poem Aus Bengalien, which was admirably performed last evening by the Gotham Symphony Orchestra, shows a masterly understanding of the tokens of India. Bengalese have, from the earliest times, been noted for their proficiency in the arts. Their principal instrument is the bimbam, an elongated drum, played upon with any convenient article, such as an elephant's tusk or the bone of an ancestor. When struck at one end, it emits the sound bim. When struck on the other, a clear-toned bam is produced, hence its curious name. The following melody, known as the war song of Prince Brahmadan, gives one an idea of the capacity of his instrument. Bim, bim, bam, bim, bam, bim. The chorus is also characteristic. Bim, bim. At the religious ceremonies of the Bengalese, a fruit tree or high priest plays upon a particular one-toned flute, producing an effect of awe and mystery as his hymn to the sun-god aptly illustrates. Toot, toot, toot-a-toot, toot-a-toot-toot, toot. With this wealth of material to draw from, Schnitzel has constructed a work that is nearly perfect in form, beginning with a soft bim-bam-bim, which is followed by a sinister toot-toot, works up to a climax of marvellous contrapuntal ingenuity in which the two themes are combined thus, bim, toot, bam, toot, toot. Truly the apotheosis of Bengal, A.L.S. 3. Acquiescence from the New York Chronicle, Washington repeated. Last night was a brilliant one at the opera. Washington, the new American music drama, was given for the second time with the same cast as before. Among those who attended the performance were Mrs. Pierpoint Astabilt, who wore pale nesserole garnished with souffle. Mr. and Mrs. Plantagenet Carter, the latter in an exquisite creation of blancmange, and Mrs. Sibley Harwood Stevens in grey limousine, air-cold with insertion. Mrs. Reginald Carrington's guests were Lord and Lady Shrewbury and the Duke de Rien. The latter wore a black dress suit and a white shirt. Mrs. Gayberg was present for the first time since the death of her husband. She wore her skirt at half-mast. 4. Senescence in the New York Evening Spot Bassoon Concert, A Relief for Modernism by A. Lincoln Simpson New York is suffering from a plethora of concerts. The fact that the halls are generally crowded is no excuse for giving so many performances. It is unfair to the critics. Yesterday afternoon, at the concert of the Gotham Symphony Society, Ludwig Kaiser played that great German masterwork, the Leberverse Bassoon Concerto in F-flat major, opus posthumous, posthumous does not in this case have its usual meaning written after the defunction of the composer's brain, it refers to the fact that Leberverse did not live to publish the work, as his audience lynched him when he played it from manuscript. This concerto, dedicated to the composer's patron, the deaf old Duke of Pretzelheim, bears the title of Spring and this vernal quality was admirably brought out by Herr Kaiser, particularly in the movement representing influenza. Indeed, it was impossible to hear his sublime snifflations without being moved to profound coughing. François Grisier's gingerbread suite, a score for viola, piccolo, trombone, celeste, might have been interesting had it been more of a novelty, but since it had been heard in New York five times within four years, its performance on this occasion was a mistake. The program included also a symphonic rhapsody on cowboy melodies. As this is by an obscure native composer and has never been heard before, there is nothing to say about it. 
even people sitting behind pillars can enjoy them. The survival of the fattest. There is no lightweight championship in opera. Stars of the first magnitude are of very considerable magnitude, three hundred pounds and up. In this class are the expensive prima donnas and heroic tenants, the term heroic referring to their efforts to move about the stage. The second magnitude, 250 to 299 pounds, includes jilted beauty, mezzo-sopranos, and hated rival baritones. The third magnitude, of which no one takes any notice, under 250 pounds, is made up of confidant contraltos and noble father bassos. Thus it will readily be seen that fat and fame are synonymous, for in navigating the high seas, latitude is far more important than longitude. Italian opera was made possible by the discoverer of spaghetti, the serpentine food that produces coloratura tissue. A few miles of this swallowed daily will keep the palate leggero and the figure larghissimo. In like manner, beer is responsible for the national opera of Germany. Who would have heard of Wagner if Pilsner had never been invented? Where could Wagner have found his massive Brunhildes, his slow-dying Tristans? Here lies the secret of the failure of our national music drama. We have spaghetti opera and beer opera, but no opera built on an American food. Emaciated from a diet of pebbly cereals and grape juice, our art still awaits the invention of the great American fatten. For fat constitutes the wonder of opera. When a diva who looks like a hippo surprises us by singing like a canary, that is something remarkable. When a languid mass of blubber, for whom the very act of standing would seem a supreme accomplishment, displays the lung energy of a steam calliope and the vocal endurance of a peanut stand whistle we are astonished overcome and fat robs the tragic ending of its depression the sight of a normally built woman expiring of heartbreak or any other favourite operatic death would be most distressing but the spectacle of a four hundred pound consumptive on a thickly padded canvas and still rock breathing forth for everlasting last like a moping walrus on a cake of ice such a spectacle does not disturb us in the least, for we realize that all she needs is a fan. Indeed, the fattest never die. After a prima donna is no longer able to maneuver over the operatic stage, she toddles along the carpet of the concert platform, tugging her train like a double expansion of freight engine, while the audience applauds from sheer amazement. She is an immense success. Even people sitting behind posts can see her. Thin singers perish and are forgotten. They were never there anyhow, but the gloriously fat ones sing on forever. When judgment day comes and the angel blows his trumpet, he will have to toot it with Wagnerian fury plus Straussian blatancy if he hopes to be heard above the aigretted and tiara dodos of Stelny Yell. End of part six. End of Bizarre by Lawton McCall. Recorded by Edmund Bloxham in Taipei, Taiwan.